2: Journalists and scientists are among those whose job it is to ferret out the truth. To investigate, collect evidence, and come up with theories. But there are other groups who claim that the truth is out there. But for these folks, the truth often has a sinister side. Things are not what they seem, and dark forces are in a cabal to manipulate events.
1: From ideas about who really masterminded the 9-11 attack to persistent claims that vaccines cause autism, we'll look at why conspiracy theories have staying power. It's Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science, and we're plotting along.
2: Plus, how effective are tinfoil hats? And why did we evolve rational brains in the first place? We evolved rational brains, didn't we? I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. But first...
3: Brains on vacation.
1: Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla's getting a bit pink.
4: Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer.
1: Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. Phil Plate gets heated up when he hears of rational thinking about science, as happened when a global warming expert on television claimed that despite the preponderance of evidence, human-induced climate change was impossible.
2: Okay, Phil, tell me about this recent report on global warming that suggested that greenhouse gas couldn't be warming our planet.
5: Yeah, you know, the media loves a controversy. It's not that the media are anti-science, it's just that they like to promote a controversy and You know, when you're Fox News, you really like to promote a controversy. And they had a global warming denier on recently. This guy's name is, I I believe it's pronounced Joe Bastardi. He's long been known to say just about anything when it comes to the climate, as long as he can promote that humans are not causing global warming. And he was on Fox News recently and said a couple of things that are, you know, if you know the science, are just jaw-dropping. Give me an
2: example. What did he say (laughs) that caused you to lose your mandible? (laughs)
5: Well, he said that human-induced climate change, and this is a quotation here, contradicts what we call the first law of thermodynamics. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed. So to look for input of energy into the atmosphere, you have to come from a foreign source. Now it's kind of hard to understand exactly what he's talking about because you know what there is a foreign source of energy into the atmosphere. It's called the sun. It's this big glowy thing that we see for you know roughly twelve hours a day on average. So you know I, I can't imagine that's what he's talking about. But I, I think he's saying that humans can't be a source of this energy.
2: So his argument is energy can be neither created nor destroyed. Well, of course that's not entirely true, but more or less true. Nonetheless, we're not talking about creating energy, are we? I mean, we're just putting more of it into our atmosphere. I don't need to create energy to boil water on my stove.
5: Well, you know, his argument is so blatantly weird, I'm not exactly sure what he's trying to say. But here's the point. The Earth has a greenhouse effect the atmosphere traps heat. We know this to be true. If the Earth did not have an atmosphere, the average temperature of our planet would actually be below the freezing point of water. So our atmosphere actually traps this heat in, and there are gases that do a better job of this than others. For example, oxygen doesn't do a great job at this, but carbon dioxide does. It lets the light from the sun heat the ground up. When that ground re-radiates this energy as infrared radiation, that gets reflected back by the carbon dioxide and the Earth warms up. That's where this energy is coming from. It's not like it's just coming out of nowhere.
2: Well. He also invoked another bit of physics, did he not, to suggest that we couldn't be causing this greenhouse effect here.
5: Yeah, this is always kind of funny when somebody tries to invoke science to deny science. And what Bastardi invoked next was Le Chatelier's principle. And this is something I learned about in high school that says that a system that's out of equilibrium tries to get back to equilibrium. If you you poke something, it tries to get back to the state before it was poked. What Bastardi is claiming here, and this is actually kind of mind-boggling, is that the Earth's temperature is actually stabilized. We're not heating up right now and we haven't been for 15 years. This is actually forehead slappingly wrong. We know that the Earth has been warming up for 15 years, 2010 was the hottest year on record. We've been going through this now for quite some time, getting hotter and hotter years. So for him to say, oh, this is why we're returning to normalcy, is again wrong. And in fact, LeShetley's principle, the way he's invoked it is incorrect because what's happening here is that our system never was in equilibrium. We are pumping more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and that is generating more of a greenhouse effect. We know that it is humans that are doing this and this is something Bastardi also claims, that humans are only pumping in a little bit of carbon dioxide compared to normal amounts and that's completely wrong. Humans are pumping 30 billion with a B, billion tons of carbon dioxide every year into the atmosphere. Volcanoes are only putting in a one one hundredth of that, one percent. You can look at the isotopes of carbon we're putting in the atmosphere, and it's clearly from burning fossil fuels.
2: So what's the bottom line here, Phil? Should everybody who works at a news network take freshman physics?
5: oh man would that be awesome not just physics but just basic principles of science i don't expect every journalist every person on air to know about science when you're talking about something as complicated as global warming or evolution or the big bang or whatever there can be decades or centuries of research that goes behind it the problem here is when somebody like Bastardi, who distorts the science and says things that are clearly incorrect and is just allowed to say all this kind of stuff, it sort of sets him up as being correct when in fact he's not. The journalists may not be able to understand the science themselves, and that's perfectly understandable, but they should at least talk to other experts, talk to more people, and find out where the arguments may be incorrect.
2: Phil, thanks so much for disturbing our equilibrium.
5: Always glad to poke you, Seth. Thanks. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation.
2: Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish. Phil Plaid is a skeptic for the Discover Magazine blog, badastronomy.com.
6: We have not ever seen, and I don't think it exists from our investigation, that there is a actual birth certificate, as you and I would have. Obama had really wanted to prove that he was born in Hawaii, and the records were there to justify it.
7: Why wouldn't he have told the Hawaii Department of Health to open their records of independent forensic examination?
3: The United Nations bragged that the H1N1 flu pandemic was a great, Drill, a global exercise preparing the planet to go under United Nations control.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Fluoride is a pesticide. Fluoride is a rat poison. Fluoride is industrial waste.
3: Fluoridated water didn't stop your tooth decay. It
7: didn't stop mine. It's a total scam, really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Simerosal is just one of the toxic poisons in vaccines.
8: And I predict that we're going to see an even greater increase in neurodegenerative diseases in this country, as well as depression, suicide, due to this uh, insane vaccine policy.
5: What else the vaccination could do is they could chip you. They have chips so small that they can go inside those vaccinations. That could be another thing they could be doing, chipping you without you knowing it.
4: Is it possible that the hijackers were merely patsies in a scheme much larger than themselves or Osama bin Laden? National laboratories developed nanothermites in the late 90s. Nanothermites are explosive thermite mixtures, and you could actually put it into paint and paint it onto the steel columns. There has never been a steel frame high-rise collapse from fire in history, yet we are told it happened three times on September 11th. Isn't this really evidence of controlled demolition? (laughs) Obvious questions aren't being answered because, of course, if you tried to answer them, maybe you can't because it wasn't what they said it was.
1: In the world of conspiracy theorists, the word theory is
2: a misnomer. After all, a theory in science refers to a proposed explanation of events or phenomena that's supported by empirical evidence.
1: But for many suspiciously minded people for whom conspiracy theories help make sense of events, They stick with the theory despite empirical evidence that argues against it.
2: Such is the case with 9-11 conspiracy theorists who, 10 years after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the detailed, detailed explanations from scientists and engineers over how two airplanes could crash into the towers, melt the steel...
1: And caused them to collapse. Despite the magazine Popular Mechanics assembling a team of nine researchers and reporters who interviewed 70 professionals in aviation, engineering, and the military who all concurred with this explanation of the towers falling, there are still those who continue to doubt. They believe in an alternative theory. It's as though we can't agree what a fact is. Okay, but look at it this way. The fall of the Twin Towers was a horrific event, one that few Americans could envision. You don't have to be paranoid to have been very shaken up and scarred by what happened that day.
2: And some people are suspicious about the cause and how it happened.
1: So what's behind their claims? Among the truthers, a journey through America's growing conspiracist underground is a look at the thought process of not just the 9-11 was an inside job movement, but of other groups that just don't buy the official story. Jonathan,
2: exactly what sorts of claims are being made when we say, for example, are here said... 9-11 was an inside job.
7: Uh, The most common theory among conspiracy theorists of 9-11 is that Dick Cheney and uh, Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz and the so-called neocons inside the White House in 2001 bombed the World Trade Center as a pretext for attacking Afghanistan and Iraq. And then they simply flew planes into the buildings as an ornamental detail in order to make it look like a terrorist attack.
2: So in fact, inside job is just a euphemism for saying that in fact, we did this, the Americans did this, they made an attack on their own country.
7: Usually the words inside job uh, is is used in that sense, but in this case they also mean it literally. They literally mean there were neocons inside the World Trade Center planting bombs to bring the buildings down.
2: The advocates of this idea include what's called the 9-11 Truth Movement. The 9-11 Truth Movement, who who make up that group?
7: Uh, It started out in the months immediately following 9-11. At first it was college activists, uh, but then it quickly took on a life of its own on the internet. And what's interesting is it's migrated to both extremes of the political spectrum. So you see 9-11 conspiracy theorists on the hard right and you also see it on the hard left this and this is one of the things that surprised me because originally I thought it would just be a left-wing phenomenon
2: so it doesn't seem to matter what your political beliefs are
7: you can believe in this the unifying element is distrust in government and distrust in public institutions. Well, if I were talking to one of these uh,
2: truthers, members of the 9-11 truth movement, and I said, well, you know, doggone it, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda destroyed these buildings in New York and they attacked the Pentagon and also the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania, what would they tell me to try and convince me that no, it, it wasn't being done by foreign uh, foreign agents.
7: They would have a list of about half a dozen talking points uh, that they use most prominently. The first what they, they would say is, how come NORAD did not intercept these hijacked airliners? The fact that NORAD didn't is proof that uh, it was an inside job. They would say, how come the World Trade Center buildings, uh, not just buildings one and two, but also building seven collapsed neatly into their own footprints on 9-11. That's proof of internal demolition. And they would say, how come George Bush wasn't alarmed when he was told about the 9-11 attacks, when he was reading a book at a children's school? They would have a whole list of these, these factoids that they would throw at you.
2: It sounds like several of them are things that didn't happen, but that doesn't sound like very good proof of an argument that, well, this didn't happen, and that person wasn't alerted, and this organization didn't pick up uh, information about the attack. What about positive
7: things, positive evidence? Is it mostly the way the buildings collapse? There, there, there is no positive evidence, and you've you've cottoned onto something there. The word they use is anomalies. They will often talk about anomalies with the official theory of 9/11, and this is the way conspiracy theorists always place the burden of proof on other people. They won't show you proof that something was an inside job. Instead, they will list what they think are anomalies with the conventional account, and they will then put the burden of proof on you to explain why those anomalies may or may not have happened.
2: You got involved in these discussion groups and meetings with the truthers, not just 9-11 truthers, but others. What kind of exchanges did you witness? I mean, what do these people talk about when they're with one another? They all believe that there was an inside job in the case of 9-11. So what do they talk about for the
7: rest of them? I did go to to many real-world conventions, but 95% of it is all done on the Internet now. In fact, one of the themes of my book is that the Internet has radically Transformed conspiracism as much as it's transformed social media or journalism or pornography, and they have debates. You know, they debate. Uh, you know, was was it just George Bush or was Dick Cheney in it, or was Wolfowitz the leader? And they will also try and update their theories according to the latest information. For instance, when the WikiLeaks scandal broke, they tried to integrate the WikiLeaks information into their uh, theories. Or for instance, when Osama bin Laden was killed a couple of months ago. Uh, one of the first things they did is theorize about whether U.S. Special Forces had actually killed Osama bin Laden because one of the sub-themes of 9-11 conspiracism is that Osama bin Laden either never existed or that he was a paid CIA agent or that he was an actor in a film studio in Los Angeles somewhere. It, it sounds like they both proselytize for their existing theories and concoct new
2: ones. I mean, they, they clearly have, uh, they get some benefit from their view of the world that it's all conspiratorial that anything of major import is not what it seems to be that I can cancel my very expensive subscription to the New York Times. And, you know, because none of that is true.
7: Yes. In fact, one of the troubling things about conspiracist uh, conspiracies subculture is that the internet has allowed them to completely tune out the mainstream media. And this was something that wasn't true 20 or 30 years ago. Conspiracy theorists had to interact at least uh, to a minimal extent with the mainstream media because that was the only way they could get their news. Most of the conspiracy theorists I interview these days, they just get the their news from their inbox from their subscriptions to other conspiracy theorists news services and they never have any exposure to the mainstream media they would never read the new york times because they think it's full of lies and they would never listen to a show like this because they think you and i are media propagandists
2: <laughs> well uh, is this you know i think of these groups as being somewhat on the fringe they're they're fringe beliefs and all sorts of stuff, to what degree do they reflect the beliefs of the American public? Are we talking about a 1% effect, a 10% effect, or one in a million?
7: Oh, well, Scripps Howard did uh, some polling a few years back, and the number of respondents who said that they had doubts about the official account of 9-11, that is to say the people who thought it might be an inside job, uh, it was polling at around 20 or 30%. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, because if you phone someone up and say, hey, do you think this was an inside job the mere fact that you're phoning them to a certain extent legitimizes the dissident point of view so it's it's hard to say how many of those people are hardcore conspiracy theorists I do know that in the context of Barack Obama birther conspiracy theories these are the folks who think Obama was born in Kenya that pulled as high as, I think, 30 or even 40 percent among Republicans. Well, this is rather dismaying. Now, you work for a newspaper there in Canada. What do Canadians
2: make of all this? Uh, Do do many of them think that the American government brought down
7: our own buildings? There is a significant fraction of Canadians who believe this. But the interesting thing is, up here in Canada, I was disappointed to find that there are almost no homegrown conspiracy theories. And this by the way is true of conspiracy theorists all around the world. There's a particular obsession with the United States and that is because it is believed that world events are controlled either by Washington or Wall Street and America has become a sort of magnet for all of these conspiracy theorists operating countries around the world.
1: Hold on, and we'll continue our conversation with journalist Jonathan Kay in a moment as we plot along on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science.
6: From the latest in artificial intelligence
4: to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And now we return to Seth's conversation with Jonathan Kaye about the staying power of conspiracy theories and the groups that propagate them. Jonathan, the
2: 9-11 conspiracists are not the only group in town thinking that the truth is out there and it's different from what you're reading in the mainstream media. You write that there's a rise in paranoid beliefs
7: in the United States. Could you give me just sort of a quick laundry list of what people are promoting these days? Well, sure. We've talked a little bit about uh, 9-11. We've talked about Barack Obama. I would say medical conspiracy theories have become a huge burgeoning uh, subculture on the Internet. And these include vaccine-based conspiracy theories, such as the idea that vaccines are a plot to exterminate humanity and poison us. There are also still very old-school water fluoridation conspiracy theories. Uh, Many of the conspiracy theorists I spoke to believe that water fluoridation is a technology invented by the Nazis to keep us all politically docile so that we don't disrupt the New World Order and its various plans. UFOs. Uh, UFOs still figure in many conspiracy theorists' uh, view of the world, and you still get some old fashioned hate mongers like anti-Semites who will still peddle things like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which of course is a, is a hoax from uh, the early 20th century.
2: One of the more interesting aspects of your book, Jonathan, is the fact that you actually went to the homes of some of these conspiracy believers. Can, can you give me an example of the kind of thing you would find when you actually talk to them one-on-one in their own environment?
7: Sure. Uh, First of all, I should say that most of the people I interviewed in the book were very socially gracious. Uh, They invited me into their homes and uh, took, uh, in some cases, many hours to speak with me. Uh, Typically, these people were middle-aged men, and often they had very technical backgrounds. They were former investigative journalists or former engineers or former computer programmers. In one case, there was uh, a former metaphysicist, a guy out in California named David Ray Griffin, Highly intelligent people who clearly had very capable brains, and they loved puzzle-solving. And for many of these people, conspiracy theories operated as a giant puzzle. They thought they could figure out how the world works if they just applied themselves diligently enough. Uh, their, their homes were often full of research materials, uh, sort of like amateur libraries. And they spent their days reading this material. Often, they would spend eight to ten hours a day on the internet, communicating with other conspiracy theorists or, or doing research. And they often lived a very hermit-like existence. And again, the internet has made this possible. You don't have to leave your home to uh, to research your conspiracy theories. Uh, but when you sat down with them, they were often very amiable, and they would serve me tea or coffee, and we would have a very amiable, amiable conversation. Uh, but of course, I could not convince them, and they could not convince me. Because for most of these people, conspiracy theories have become a sort of religion. It is a way of explaining the world. And in particular, it is a way of explaining evil, which is one of the functions of religion. So these people have decided that all evil resides in, you know, take your pick, the the U.S. government or the UN or the New World Order, the Bilderbergers or what have you. And having having convinced themselves of that, they are not going to let some Canadian journalist walk into their home and convince them otherwise. Is it the case that the belief
2: in conspiracies is greater now than it has been? I mean, you've mentioned the internet a couple of times here that uh, that has facilitated the growth of conspiracy movements, if you will, conspiracy groups. Would you say that there's more belief in this now than
7: there was, you know, 50 years ago? I don't know that there's more, but it's different. 50 years ago, the most common form of conspiracism were, were things like uh, garden-variety bigotry uh, and, and anti-Semitism. You know, it, it was very common that you'd meet people who would blame all their problems on blacks or Jews or, or Catholics. Uh, uh, you know, these, these were common themes uh, two or three generations ago. That is no longer common, thankfully. And so conspiracism has now become more esoteric. It's become more organizational. Uh, people become obsessed with things like the Bilderbergers, which is a transatlantic NGO, or the Council on Foreign Relations, or the Trilateral Commission. Not so much blaming their problems on Jews and blacks, but on uh, on, on organizations that they don't understand, or the CIA, or, or NATO, for instance. And again, you mentioned the internet. Uh, The internet has made it possible for very complex conspiracy theories, not just simple folk tales like the Jew poisoned the well or something like that, but very complex conspiracy theories like the 9-11 conspiracy theories we've been talking about, to be distributed in detail to millions of people around the world and to do it for free, which of course couldn't be done 20 years ago.
2: So, how do we address this conspiratorial mindset? Uh, do we need to address it? I mean, is it causing damage? And if so, how do we address it if we can't convince them?
7: Yeah, it is causing damage. Uh, you know, How do you talk about national security with someone who believes 9-11 was an inside job? How do you talk about healthcare reform with someone who thinks that Barack Obama's healthcare plan was just a plot to send their grandmother to a death panel? It it becomes impossible to have garden-variety political discussions with people when they have these conspiracy theories, so it's doing real damage to the body politic. And as I say, confronting people who are conspiracy theorists is fruitless once they've become a conspiracy theorist. So what I advocate is educating people before they've gone down the rabbit hole, showing people that conspiracism is like any other toxic-ism. It's like sexism, it's like racism. It's a way of thinking that distorts your rational judgment. Jonathan Kaye, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me.
1: Among the Truthers, a journey through America's growing conspiracist underground is the book by Jonathan Kay. Shh, don't tell anyone. But he's also a managing editor for Comet at Canada's National Post newspaper. Okay, there are a lot of ideas out there that don't hold up to scrutiny.
2: But the idea of a conspiracy is itself not at all unreasonable.
1: Because, let's face it, some conspiracies are very real.
8: It is my honest belief that while the president was involved, that he did not realize or appreciate at any time the implications of his involvement. And I think that when the facts come out, I hope the president is forgiven.
2: And as John Dean's Pursuing 1973 Watergate testimony before Congress the demonstrates, we're riveted by the idea of conspiracies.
1: But our brains also tend to see them even in places where they don't exist. Why is that? Michael Shermer is author of The Believing Brain, From Ghosts and Gods to Politics and Conspiracies, How We Construct Beliefs and Reinforce Them as Truths
3: conspiracy theory is in fact a a form of pattern of connecting the dots A is connected to B and B is connected to C and that's all a conspiracy theory is and in fact, there are conspiracies that conspiracy theories that turn out to be true, because conspiracies happen. Conspiracies when whenever two or more people, uh, you know, meet privately or talk privately to, to do something to you without your permission. So I mean, Lincoln was assassinated by a conspiracy. Watergate was a conspiracy. Gulf of Tonkin. There's you know all sorts of examples of things that the. The U.S. government did during the Cold War that people would consider conspiracies. Okay, fine, but that doesn't mean everything is a conspiracy. That doesn't mean JFK and RFK and MLK Jr. were conspiracies. That doesn't mean Princess Di was a conspiracy. So we have to take them individually. Which ones have evidence for them, which ones don't?
2: Well, Michael, is there any pattern to those events that generate conspiracy theories? It seems to me that they tend to be big stories, but maybe those are the conspiracy theories I hear about And Maybe they're conspiracy theories about all sorts of things, about why I didn't get a parking space at the mall last week. I mean, <laughs> is
3: there any sort of common denominator? There are. There are certain characteristics that tell us that a conspiracy theory is probably not true. So, for example, the more people that have to be involved, the less likely it is to be true, simply because people make mistakes, errors are made, people can't keep their mouth shut. uh, We find out about these things. There's too much chance for incompetency and bumbling and stumbling your way into the conspiracy. So the more people that are involved, less likely it is to be true. The more components that have to come together at the right time to make the conspiracy work, the less likely it is to be true. It's hard to coordinate these things. Very difficult. The fog of war, so to speak. Nothing ever goes according to plan, and the more components you have involved, the less likely it is to be true. The grander the consequences of the conspiracy, the less likely it is to be true. That is, if it's a conspiracy for the parking spot, okay, you know, maybe, right? Or insider trading, or this corporation is cheating a little bit, or conspiring to hold prices down with some other corporation. Yeah, yeah, okay, that stuff probably goes on. But you know world domination or you know attempting to unite Canada and Mexico through the United States as one giant concentration camp. these are very unlikely to be true. The grander the scale, the less likely it is to be true.
2: Is there some evolutionary benefit or or even just, you know, a little bit of extra dopamine in believing in a conspiracy? I mean, take something like 9-11. Of course, this is a major catastrophe. And there are people who think that that was an inside job. It was done by the U.S. government or some other government, but not the people that are generally uh, given the blame
3: for doing this. What does that do for the person who believes in that? Why do they want to believe in that? Well, first of all, it reduces something that's called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is where two things don't match in your head. So in the case of a conspiracy, if you have the size of the event and the size of the cause, it's cognitively dissonant if they're asymmetrical, that if the effect is huge but the cause is simple. So you'll hear this with uh, 9-11, for example. I remember I was on the radio with uh, Jesse Ventura because he had a new book out about this, and he's a big believer in in the 9-11 inside job theories. You know, he said, you mean to tell me, Shermer, that, you know, 19?" Guys with box cutters, talking to some guy in a cave in Afghanistan, brought down the greatest nation on Earth. I mean, come on. I don't believe it. There's got to be something big, huge inside, right? So, the size of the event has to be matched by the size of the cause. JFK, you know, the leader of the free world, handsome, articulate, smart, was taken down by who? Lee Harvey Oswald, some lone nut, just a loser? Or Princess Diana, you know, cause of death, drunk driving, speeding, no seatbelt. You know, it doesn't get any more mundane than that. 37,000 Americans die of this every year on America's highways. We can't have our princesses dying the same way. There has to be an inside job by the royal family or some Arab secret cabal or, you know, whoever. We want that matched so that it feels like there's something sizably in parallel with, with the event itself. And that we don't get. And then it also gives people kind of a a little, well, like a dopamine thrill, a little boost. Like, I I have secret information, inside information. I know what really was going on at Area 51 or whatever. You speak of cognitive dissonance
2: between the magnitude of whatever the phenomenon is and the necessity of having a similarly monstrous, if you will, cause, a conspiracy. But on the other hand, what about the cognitive dissonance of of presenting all the evidence that that isn't true? What about that cognitive
3: dissonance? Well, see, what it is is a type of cognitive bias going on there. That We know that the planes hit the World Trade Center buildings. We all saw the videos of it, and we saw the buildings collapse, start their collapse at the point of impact where the planes actually hit on those particular floors at the angle at which the plane hit. We've all seen that. And Al-Qaeda said they did it, and they said they'd do it again if they could, and they they tr- attempted at, you know, on 7 7 and in Lisbon, and they attempted at LAX and so on, the USS Cole embassies around the world. You know, so we know that they were involved. And so 9 11 was a conspiracy. That is, 19 members of Al Qaeda plotting to fly planes into buildings without telling us ahead of time constitutes a conspiracy. But to believe that and in conjunction with that, this is called the conjunction fallacy, that the US government was also involved, or the Bush administration, or whoever planting explosive devices in the World Trade Center buildings, this is not logically sound. This is the conjunction fallacy, that it's less likely to have two improbable events happen at the same time than either one of them by themselves. So I'd be more likely to believe an inside job if we never saw the planes hit, if al-Qaeda never said that they did it, if we had no evidence for that. Then maybe, okay. But to have both of those at the same time is very improbable, and that's all you need to know. You don't need to know about thermite and secret thermite and nanothermite and you know, all the technicalities of whether it was a missile or a plane that hit the Pentagon, none of that matters. Logically, it can't have been both. Yeah, it's just a lot of thermite pleasure there, Michael. But, <laughs> well, well they, these guys are really into thermite, yeah. believe me. This is their big <laughs> explanation. But here's a, a thing: a, another thing we know that the nine eleven truthers are not right. We know that with conspiracies that have happened in the past, we find out about them fairly quickly after the event. You know, Lincoln was assassinated by conspiracy. We knew this within hours. And Watergate. I mean, think about Watergate. I mean, here's uh, Nixon and the Nixon administration, the most powerful administration in the world, and they can't even break into a hotel room. That's nothing compared to like bringing down the two largest buildings in America from explosive devices and flying a missile into the Pentagon and all the other things that were supposed to be going on. They can't even break into a hotel room. That's typically how it goes. People sort of fumble and bumble their way through conspiracies, and then we find out about it, especially because people can't keep their mouth shut. Somebody knows somebody who told somebody, and before you know it, they got a best-selling book out or they're on Larry King Live or your show talking about it. And that's how we find out about these things.
2: Well, finally then, Michael, is there going to be any hope for a closure on this? Because it's been 10 years since 9-11. Uh, there are still people who believe, it, indeed, that it was the U.S. government who caused this, or at least were partially responsible.
3: Is this going to go on, like, for example, the Roswell incident, essentially forever? It seems like it. I really thought it would go away. First of all, I thought it would go away within a year or so, and it continued. And then I thought, well, maybe after you know Bush is out of office, because it was always sort of anti-Bushers that were into the 9/11 truthism. Uh, but no, uh-uh. even with Obama, uh, they still you know are insisting that it was an inside job. And so who knows? I mean, it's clearly not evidence-based because we really have addressed all of their claims. Not not just calling them nutters or whatever. I mean, that doesn't help. Really, we have published in uh, skeptic.com and in skeptic magazine and in my new book, uh, The Believing Brain, point by point. Here's their argument. Here's why it's wrong. And they don't uh, respond. They don't say, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Thermite couldn't have done it. They don't. They just uh, continue to make the argument louder. <laughs> and that tells us that it's probably bogus. Michael Shermer, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome.
1: Michael Shermer is founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, and he's the author of The Believing Brain, From Ghosts and Gods to Politics and Conspiracies, How We Construct Beliefs and Reinforce Them as Truths.
2: Coming up, don't buy any of this? Still wearing a tinfoil hat to protect yourself just in case? Well, I don't blame you. Only, you may want to hear just how effective a hat of aluminum foil is at keeping the government and maybe alien invaders from reading, or at least controlling, your thoughts. We're plotting along on Skeptic Check.
0: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready, or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Seth, here's some tin foil. Okay, can you make it into a hat?
2: Well, sure, at least I can give it a try. I suppose something like this would work.
1: Well, what's the idea with tinfoil hats anyway?
2: Well, the idea is that you wear them to protect your brain from electromagnetic radiation. I'll put this peak in here. All the charge will go up there. The idea originated in science fiction. There was a story in 1927 by Julian Huxley in which he refers to caps of metal foil used to block telepathy.
1: Okay, that's good. That looks good. Can you put that on your head?
2: Yeah. I feel better already. <laughs> okay.
1: Now, today, though, the tinfoil headgear is associated either with post postmodern fashion...
2: Yes, tinfoil is the new black.
1: <laughs> ...or conspiracy types and paranoids who fear mind control or perhaps aliens reading their brains.
2: Yes, mind control is the new
1: black. <laughs> but before you fashion an aluminum chapeau of your own, you should ask yourself just how effective will it be? If only there were a study. There's a study on the effectiveness of tinfoil hats. It's a scientific ish article produced by four students at MIT in 2005. Okay, it's a few years ago, but the data are more relevant than ever, right? With all those conspiracies out there.
2: Molly went to covertly meet with one of the authors of this study, Ben Recht, now a professor of computer science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
1: Well, I've come down this alley here behind the coffee shop to talk to Ben Recht. Apparently, this is the only place that he'll meet with me.
4: We have a lot of back alleys in Madison, where we do all of our radical planning. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, the radical planning that I want you to help me with today is I have some tinfoil that I brought. I think you recognize it. Could you fashion it into a quick hat, or at least give me an idea of how one would fold this into a hat?
4: It's been my impression that everybody does it their own way, and we did... T- initially test out many different ways of creating a hat, but I think you just take the foil and then you make a cylinder and then you crinkle the top over. Usually you can just wrap that around your head first.
1: So the idea is among some the idea is that you put on this tinfoil hat and it protects you from what people reading your mind or what actually is the purpose of a tinfoil hat?
4: Well when we uh, actually set out to do this experiment we weren't hundred percent sure we knew what the focus was basically because we hung out with a lot of radio frequency engineers. We, we assumed they were just trying to block government radio frequencies. So it seemed like, you know, you're just building a little cage around your head to keep out the, the frequencies, just like a, when you're in some new building, you don't get cell phone coverage.
1: So the theory is that a metal hat would block out radio waves. Now, as a theory, how does that stand just by itself? Because metal does block radio waves.
4: Right. I mean, that's, I think, what's called a Faraday cage, kind of the idea behind anechoic chamber, right, where you actually put yourself in a, a, a room and you build special cones, and that actually can dampen or reduce radio reflections and radio waves. So, there is, obviously, there's some physics there.
1: Okay, so your idea was to find out whether or not these tinfoil hats actually protected people, and you tested a number of frequencies. Can you give me an overview of the frequencies that you tested and how you set up this experiment?
4: Well, we had a spectrum analyzer that went from the low megahertz up into the gigahertz, and we just swept through it. So basically, we had the machine in the lab, and we just tested the range that that machine was going to let us put out. So gigahertz is what you think of, of um, uh, wireless, like 802.11. And then megahertz is closer to what you would get on the radio. I mean, you get all the way down into like AM radio.
1: So when we talk about the electromagnetic spectrum, we're talking about radio waves, which are the longest, and then microwaves, infrared, visible, all the way down to x-rays and gamma.
4: Yeah, so definitely not that high. Not that high. Not into the visible radiation. This machine basically only went up to the same level as what your 802.11 wireless card in your computer would do.
1: So the scenario is you had a number of you and your colleagues put on these tinfoil hats, a number of different styles, and you blasted each other's heads with microwaves uh, or radio waves? Well,
4: <laughs> now we're going into experimental methodology, yeah. Uh, so we took a bust of... Uh, that we had kicking around the Media Lab. Uh, We wrapped it in aluminum foil, and we had inside the cast of his head, we had a probe, and that was basically it. So we had a a transmitter that was outside the helmet, a receiver that was inside the aluminum foil, and we just scanned.
1: Okay, so you tested these hats on a number of frequencies, really the long-range frequencies. This this would be uh, radio waves and microwaves, and and what did you conclude?
4: We found that uh, these helmets didn't deflect anything. In fact, uh, there were a couple bands where we actually saw amplification, meaning it was more signal inside the helmet than, than you might expect there to be.
1: So these helmets are actually acting as receivers in some way?
4: Right, we found a couple bands where there was a bit of amplification, but we didn't find any bands where you actually saw a lower signal, which you might have hoped to see, that you would actually be, find some protection. There was nothing that protected you from and maybe a couple things that may have amplified your sensitivity to.
1: So what did you conclude after your study?
4: I think at the end of the day, we concluded that aluminum foil helmets are a pretty ineffective way to protect your brain from uh, tampering by the government.
1: Did you try multi-layers? What if you put three or four layers of tin foil?
4: This is true. So I guess this is the other nice thing about academic work is that you always create the potential for more work. So any eager, young uh, academic out there, here are a couple papers you can go work on when you have some time to kill in your lab.
1: Finally, Ben, what would you suggest to someone who wants to protect their brain from mind reading by the government or aliens, whatever it might be, can you propose an alternative solution?
4: Well, so it turns out that there actually are a variety of alternatives to aluminum foil that lots of people who are afraid of this kind of tampering have developed. And I think just a Google search can lead you down a lot of different paths to aluminum foil alternatives.
1: Okay, so you're suggesting that those who don't want to wear a tinfoil hat should go on the internet to find a better solution.
4: The internet is always the place to find the better solution, as far as I can tell.
1: So the truth is out there, and it's on the internet.
4: I hope so, yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay, Ben, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Now, should we leave separately so you're not seen with me? That's
4: right. You go down that one, I can go down this way, and I think we'll be fine.
1: Okay, thank you.
4: (laughs) Protecting the world
2: from the mind control that will turn you into more of a droid than you feel late at work on a Friday afternoon, Ben Recht is a computer scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You can find a link to his tinfoil hat study on our website. But what sort of brains are
1: those tinfoil hats protecting anyway? Are they rational? That's the theory. Homo sapiens sapiens evolved to be critical thinkers. We weigh and test evidence in our pursuit of the truth. Although, as we've heard, there's disagreement over where to find that truth.
2: Ah, but if I may counter your argument, Ms. Bentley, perhaps our reasoning brains did not evolve to seek truth, but to win arguments.
1: That's a delightful idea, Dr. Shostak. However, it has a flaw. If our brains evolve to win arguments, then we are motivated only by a desire to manipulate others.
2: But is that not reasonable, Ms. Bentley, given that so many arguments are riddled with bias and lack of logic?
1: Dr. Shostak, those are just kinks in our mental process. (laughs) You should know.
2: What'd you say? Nothing. Figures. Cheap shot. What did you say? I I
1: said, dig yours teapot. That doesn't even make sense. You know what? Let's leave the arguing up to the professionals. Hugo Mercier at the University of Pennsylvania has proposed the idea that the human capacity for reasoning evolved to win arguments. University of Notre Dame psychologist Darsha Narvez disagrees.
8: Reasoning didn't evolve to help the lone thinker, the lone reasoner make better decisions. So the goal of reasoning, the function of reasoning, is not uh, for you to just reason on your own and and try to ponder the pros and cons. When you do that, uh, usually you don't get very, very good results in, in many cases. But what we're saying is that Instead, reasoning evolved to argue, basically, so that you can argue with your uh, with your fellow human beings, you can argue with your partners, with your friends, and so you need reasoning to find arguments and also to evaluate other people's arguments.
2: Sounds reasonable to me that uh, that this is just a mechanism for, for convincing other people in an argument and uh, has nothing to do with the seekers of truth.
6: Well, I think that does happen, that... Social reasoning is used in that way. I don't think reasoning in human beings evolved for that purpose initially, but that's how we use it part of the time. But I reason every day on my own. For example, I was in Oxford a couple weeks ago in a hotel room, and the toilet just didn't act like a normal toilet. I turned the knob and nothing would happen. and I So I puzzled about that and had to figure out some new logic, and uh, realized it was a pump toilet. You had to pump the handle to get it to work. Well, I used reasoning there, and I think that's how we humans started evolving our reasoning to solve everyday tasks and challenges. It's not just for persuasion.
2: Well, Hugo, that uh, what do you say to that? I mean, I- indeed, uh, what, it sounds like evolution might favor the conmans if we buy into your theory because uh, they might have very persuasive arguments, which we listen to, and uh, we've, we've been led down the primrose path.
8: That's actually something that we would argue is not evolutionarily possible. And the reason is that it's uh, like an axiom, if you will, of the theory of the evolution of communication that... For communication to be stable in any species, it has to benefit uh, both the people who send, you know, the messages and those who receive the messages. If the senders don't benefit from communication, well, they're just going to stop sending. And if the receivers don't benefit from communication either, well, they're just going to stop receiving. So, if people, on average, were misled by arguments, they would just stop listening to arguments. It would it would not make any sense for them to, you know, keep being de- deceived again and again.
2: There's a point here, Darsha, that uh, when I tune in to almost any political debate on television, for example, the goal of the opponents is almost never to arrive at the truth, but to make a win on national television. That certainly sounds as if it supports this idea that the argument is not about getting at the truth.
6: Right. That's rhetoric, and that's what rhetoric is for, and I think humans are good at that. And especially these days in the United States, we see it all over the television. But I don't think, again, that that means that we evolved only our reasoning capabilities only for those kinds of activities.
8: I would actually, um, if if I may side, uh, maybe with uh, with Arsha there, in that I don't think, I mean, we don't think that reasoning evolved for anything like you know presidential debates, for instance. And the difference between presidential debates and what we think would be a genuine debate is that there is no interaction. Um, None of them are going to change their mind in response to the other arguments. So what we have here is a very artificial context in which reasoning is used in a way that is quite different from what we think it evolved for.
2: One of the points you made earlier, Hugo, is that reasoning doesn't work very well if it's not done in a group. If you're just sitting around trying to reason, that uh, the mechanism isn't very good. And yet, when many people think of reason, they're thinking of people of the Enlightenment or, or they're thinking of, well, for example, Galileo. And would would Galileo, I mean, he came up with some very good ideas. He wasn't necessarily talking to a lot of people about it. And do you think uh, he was, you know, coming to these ideas because he wanted to best the Pope on the question of whether the sun was at the center of
8: the solar system? So, indeed, there is this uh, popular conception of the, the scientific genius as being a lonely figure. So, you have, you know, you have Newton, you have, you know, Einstein, uh, Galileo, indeed, who um, for at least a part of their lives were partially loners. If you take Galileo, for instance, from what I, I know about him, he was a very argumentative person. So he really, really liked to fight. He really liked to argue, to argue. And also, you could note that Galileo recognized the, the power of, of arguments because the main books he wrote take the form of dialogues. So he, he realized that a good way to explain a theory and to make it convincing was to set it up in a dialogue as two people you know, trying to convince each other rather than as a dry explanation as we find in modern textbooks
6: we have to realize that people are reasoning all the time it's just not in this left brain conscious sentence type of thinking that the philosophers have emphasized for so long
2: let me just follow up with a question to you hugo your idea here regarding reasoning what what would be the payoff how could this help us uh, you know as as a species as a culture as a society
8: i guess the way we could try to apply these ideas And actually, um, they have already been applied long before we we came up with them, so we benefited from uh, a substantial amount of research in in two main uh, applied fields. The first is um, educational psychology and developmental psychology, which has shown through many, many experiments um, that children get much better, reason much better, solve problems much better uh, when they are in groups. It has led to huge improvements um, in schools, So that would be the first uh, domain of application that one can think of. And the other would be politics. And over the last 20 years in political science, there has been um, a minor revolution towards um, deliberative democracy. The idea that people, instead of simply voting, um, should deliberate more. They should deliberate at the local level. People should be involved. And good good outcomes usually come of, of such deliberations.
2: Well, Hugo Mercier and Darsha Narvaez, I hope that this uh, small little argument here may have led to at least a a modicum of enlightenment. I want to thank both of you. Darsha, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. And Hugo, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Hugo Mercier is a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, and Darsha Narvaez is a psychology professor at the University of Notre Dame. And that is it for our show. Thanks to our production staff, who are never under suspicion, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Keith Rosendahl, and volunteer Jay Weiler.
2: Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
1: You can find Big Picture Science and our monthly look at critical thinking skeptic check on iTunes and through the link on our website.
2: If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. You've been listening to Skeptic Check, plodding along.
1: <sighs> Are the microphones off? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm certain. We're off the air. Okay, good. Well, that should keep them satisfied.
2: Yep. Another stint is Seth and Molly. Do you think they've caught on? You mean, is it obvious that Seth and Molly don't exist? No, it's too convincing.
1: You're right. No one would assume that people would purposely make puns like that.
2: So now we can fulfill our plan. Wait,
0: wait. The microphone is still on. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimburger Family Foundation. At the foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimburger.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.